oftentimes it's really helpful to actually go to your manager or to go to somebody else in the organization and help you further map out your unknown network. One Friday in, in 2010, I was working from the Oakland headquarters and by the next Monday, I was working from a card table in an extra room at my grandmother's house in, in the suburbs of Philly. So what is distance bias? There's two unconscious biases that are really important to understand. Hello, heroes of hybrid work. I'm Jenny Mobius and an SVP at SCEDA, where I'm lucky I get to help organizations bring their hybrid workspaces to life every day. Part of that mission includes bringing you the latest data and insights from today's top voices, researchers, and business leaders so you can make the right decisions for your business. On today's pod, Sasha Connor, former exec at the Clorox company, a $7 billion company, and current founder and CEO of Virtual Work Insider, shares her story of pioneering remote work in 2010, leading teams from 3,000 miles away when remote work tech was in its infancy, and how she founded Orbit, the first ever virtual workforce ERG. She also digs into two unconscious biases that occur, distance and recency bias, how to mitigate them and build a location-inclusive culture, as well as techniques for mentoring in these challenging hybrid environments. Alrighty, hi Sasha. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Heroes of Hybrid Work. We are very excited to have you on the show. Hi Jenny, thanks for having me. So I'm Sasha Connor. I'm the CEO of Virtual Work Insider, and we help teams to lead and communicate and build culture across distance, whatever distance means for that team, whether it's a hybrid team, a remote team, or a geographically distributed team. Yeah, and honestly, congratulations. Sounds like an amazing organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about the story of, of starting it and um, you know why you started it and and uh, kind of what pain points you're solving. So I had a long history leading large enterprise business teams. So my career actually started working in account management for a couple of ad agencies. And then I spent 14 years at the Clorox company, which is a $7 billion company that's headquartered in Oakland, California. And while I was at Clorox, I was leading marketing teams and new product innovation teams and sales teams on many of the brands that you probably have used in your, in your daily life. Yep. And my remote work story started back in 2010. So I had been working for Clorox in the San Francisco Bay Area for six years when my husband and I had our first child, our daughter, Nevin. She was, she was born while we lived in San Francisco, but my family and my husband's family lived in the Philadelphia area and we wanted her to grow up near her grandparents. So that, that prompted me to ask this bold question to Clorox, which was, could I keep my job but do it from the opposite coast of the United States? And in 2010, it was unheard of to not work at headquarters in the type of role that I had, which was leading large new product innovation teams. But I had a good relationship with the chief marketing officer, and he said I could be an experiment to see if I could do my job and lead my teams from 3,000 miles and three time zones away. So one Friday in, in 2010, I was working from the Oakland headquarters, and by the next Monday, I was working from a card table in an extra room at my grandmother's house in, in the suburbs of Philly, and I had no idea how I was going to continue to be effective while working fully remotely. I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I was going to figure it out. 
because I had this weight on my shoulders that I knew that if I wasn't successful doing this, that it would be unlikely that the company was going to let others follow in my footsteps. And so that's what started me to get kind of into this area around like, how do we lead and communicate and collaborate, build culture when we're working across distance? That's incredible. Uh, I actually also moved to California for just a year and a half and had uh, my daughter out in California and then only just for a short time, then moved back here to Boston because it's really where my community was, my village was. It was very hard to raise kids on your own, obviously. You know that. Yes, so, yes. So, but I did not, I mean, I was working remotely for a bunch of clients, but I did not work in-house and have to manage people across time zones and 3,000 miles. I think that's a an amazing feat. Uh, I think it was actually very difficult for myself with, you know, today we have all the processes in place, the technology in place back in, 20, even in 2014 when my daughter was born, I don't think we had any of that. Let's talk more about uh, what you did at Clorox. So um, I noticed in your background that you founded Orbit, the first ever virtual workforce employee resource group, also known as ERGs at Clorox. I actually find it extremely fascinating that we need to think of the remote experience as one where we also need to ensure equity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why, do, why did you need an ERG? Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, you said you said back in 2014, a lot of those structures and technology tools and processes weren't in place. And in 2010, when I went remote, that was especially true. And so I realized that I had to completely relearn how to work. And the good news was that I figured out that I wasn't actually alone in this. So over time, I started to find pockets of people who were also remote work pioneers within different functions within the company. And we started to meet informally and share stories and best practices. And then in 2013, this small group of these fully remote peers, well, we decided that we wanted to formalize our community. So we took that concept of an employee resource group or an ERG and we applied it to that virtual workforce. And we called it Orbit, as you mentioned, and it was an acronym originally. It was an acronym for Offices Remote But Integral Teammates. Because initially we thought this was going to be a place that our small group of these fully remote employees were going to continue to build some belonging and learn from each other. And what happened was within the first couple of months, Orbit became the largest and fastest growing ERG at Clorox. So there were nine ERGs. We became the largest and fastest growing, even though less than 5% of Clorox employees worked fully remotely. And so that, that baffled me because... I was like, why are these people signing up to be part of the ERG? So I started asking people that were working out of headquarters why they were becoming members. And they told me that they were working with other people at other Clorox sites across the U.S. and the globe. And they, too, needed to learn how to work in virtual teams. And that's when I had my big aha, which was that the skills and the techniques that I was learning working fully remotely were applicable to 95% of Clorox's workforce because what we had in common was that we were all working across distance to some degree. Yeah. And for me, you know, what had started out as an experiment of being this remote work pioneer within the marketing function turned into eight years of me leading large hybrid and distributed teams while working out of my home office here in Philly. Incredible. So I guess our audience probably wants to know, like, what was your main function in this ERG? What did you learn? What was the biggest 
learning that you can offer up? Yeah, so I, I built and led that ERG over, over many years. And it started with some simple things. So you mentioned technology earlier, where the technology is, was nowhere near what it is today in terms of what was available. Actually, at the time, the uh, the Clorox company was just starting to use video conferencing, and they had an early version of WebEx, which was called Movi. And I remember that I, I had to befriend a bunch of people in the IT department to get a list of IP addresses that if I type them in a movie, they would let my, my face show up on the screen in the room. So nobody had to touch any, any buttons at that point. I could just show up <laughs> on, on any room in the building. And over time, as video conferencing be, became more um, mainstream at, at the company, we had to do a lot of work just to help to teach the teams how to use that technology to connect with each other. So we became almost the training arm of the IT function at the beginning to not just talk about the technology, but the use cases to so talk about how do we use the video conferencing technology to create better hybrid and virtual meetings within the company. Um, also, when I, as a marketing director, I was working with seven different external marketing agencies at any given time. And so for me, it was really important to start building those relationships with the agencies by using the video technology as well so that we could form better relationships and see the context of people's um, facial expressions and responses as we were reviewing creative, for example. And so there was a lot about the technology piece, but then also starting to teach more of those leadership skills of how to influence across distance, which became a, a big part of um, the training programs that we were leading at Clorox, but also that we're doing within Virtual Work Insider. Definitely. So that actually leads us right into my next question. One of your, I noticed one of your virtual leadership skills training programs focuses on this. So what is distance bias and what's the number one way to mitigate it? It could be more than one way to mitigate it, I'm sure. But like what, what comes to mind when you're working with organizations when it comes to distance bias? But first, let's just get a feel for what it is. Yeah, I think there's two unconscious biases that are really important to understand while teams are working in hybrid, geographically distributed and remote environments. So the first one is distance bias, which is also known as proximity bias, which is our brain's natural tendency to put more importance on the people and things that are closer to us than those that are farther away. And so if you think about my situation that I was explaining where I was in Philadelphia and the majority of the people that I was working with were in the same building on the same floor in Oakland, California, I was feeling that distance bias every day. And, and actually, I learned about distance bias through the Neuroleadership Institute. They did an unconscious bias training at Clorox. And I was like, wow, that was like my big aha. Like, that's what I've been feeling every day. It wasn't that people were leaving me out on purpose. It was an unconscious bias that because I was not there in the building, that sometimes I was not being thought about or um, undervalued. Right. And so the, then the second bias that we need to be aware of is its kind of close cousin, which is recency bias, which is our brain's natural tendency to put more importance on the people and things that we've heard from or seen most recently. So if you think about teams that might be all distributed or all virtual, you know, that recency bias can come into play. There will come a time when your CEO will ask, so um, how are people responding to the new hybrid work policy? 
And I'm here to make sure that you have an answer that's a little better than, I don't know. I mean, Craig gave me a high five after lunch, so I guess that's cool. With Sketa, you can get a ton of insights into how your space is being utilized. See the office's busiest and quietest days, which users are the most active in office, and when meeting rooms are being underutilized, and much, much more. Maybe a certain desk is being booked solid day after day because it's the only desk with two monitors. Or you need to know what day of the week to host your event. Whatever it is, make your decisions data backed by using the Insight tab of your space scheduler. Sketa, hybrid work, people first. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I think we deal with that every day. It takes some serious intentionality to remember what you said to the person in, you know, in person at the water cooler in the kitchen, and then, you know, carry that to your remote teams too. I, I actually find that very difficult, especially as an extrovert who's having these conversations all the time. It's like, oh yeah, I should write this down, send it to my remote people. So you also talk about um, how mentoring can, can be suffering um, in hybrid workforces. So what are some of the practical strategies and techniques to become a better mentor and a guide for hybrid workforces? I, I definitely struggle with this. I think as, as you're thinking about being a mentor and a mentee, you know, it's important to know that mentorship can happen from any location. So I, th I think what you might read in the headlines and the media is kind of this faulty premise that mentorship needs to happen in person in an office. And there's data that's showing that people are, are mentoring more when they're co-located in an office together. Exactly. But it's not because that is the only place that mentorship can happen. It's probably just the, the, the style of mentorship that people are most comfortable with currently. True. So I, th I think it's important to first start to think about if you are, are wanting to mentor somebody or do need a men mentor, to think about your fuller network. Who should you be reaching out to based on your career goals, based on the things that you want to learn from somebody else, and not just think about those people that might be coming in and out of your local office. And so one of the ways to do that is to kind of map your sphere of influence and exposure. So thinking about all of the people that you think that you need to gain exposure to or influence up, down, inside and outside of your organization. And it's it's easy for somebody to kind of map out what their known network is. So the people that they know that they interact with um, from a peer, peer perspective or key stakeholder perspective. But oftentimes it's really helpful to actually go to your manager or to go to somebody else in the organization and help you further map out your unknown network. Who are the people that you actually need to gain exposure to that okay. you might not run into the, the water cooler on a daily basis that might be in a different location or a different function within the company? I actually, I love that. Um, and I think it takes a lot of guts to do that too. I think it takes even more guts to do that in a remote environment because you don't know, you think you might be, I hear this all the time, oh, I'm, I don't want to bother them or they look like they have a busy schedule. But if you were physically in person, you might be like, hey, you want to grab a cup of coffee and it would just happen, right? So I do hear that a lot. And I think, I think we're at a big disadvantage being remote. But I also think, again, like if you're deliberate about it, you just have to be intentional about it and remind yourself that this is going to help you then, you know, that's, that's the way to go about it. So it's just about reminding people, right? Like make, make it a point today to 
X versus like, it'll just happen. And also, you know, like you're saying, it is difficult to reach out across that distance, right? It's one more barrier to asking for help or mentorship. And so finding somebody else that you have a relationship with that can make that introduction and, and kind of open the, open the door to the initial conversation. And I yeah. think in a hybrid environment, especially if you are coming in and out of an office uh, and you do find that somebody that you do want some exposure to or, or want to expand your network with, with use the, the time in the office together to actually meet up and, and have that kind of in-person connection at first that, that, that then could move into a, a virtual mentorship relationship. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's great, great advice uh, that we haven't heard yet. I love it. I guess where I want to kind of shift a bit is to employee trust. I, I read some great stuff on LinkedIn that you wrote about digital uh, presenteeism. To get that right, presenteeism. So how can we help our employees? First, what is it? And how can we help our employees focus on what really matters? Yeah, so there was some great research that was done recently about this idea of digital presenteeism. It was done through Catalog and GitLab. And it's it's about the extra energy that people put toward making sure that their team members, their stakeholders, their manager know that they're actually working, even though they, they can't be seen doing the job. Oh, yeah. so, so if we think about working across distance, right, we're behind these virtual curtains, right? We can't actually see the other person at the cubicle working into the late hours of the night or coming in early. And so we kind of overcompensate through being available at all hours and responding to communication at all hours. And when I when I learned about this word of digital presenteeism, I was like, wow, like that's what I did all of those years at Clorox because Again, I was this pioneer in this remote work situation, and I felt like if I didn't do it well, again, that other people were not going to be allowed to do it as well. And so I overcompensated by responding to everything, you know, as fast as I could, even though I was three time zones ahead of most of, of the communication. Right. So for me, it was like late late nights consistently trying to keep up with the communication to show like, hey, I'm working, trust me, even though I'm 3,000 miles away. So I guess what's the the better way to do it. I think um, you also talked about, I think this kind of relates, you talked about um, giving proactive permission. So I, I feel like that might be on the flip side of this. Tell me a little bit more about what that means. I think there's two pieces to this. The first is having these really intentional conversations about our norms and our availability expectations and our responsiveness expectations. And if you have those conversations up front and understand what the expectation is for how fast you need a response to different types of communication or within different types of communication tools, it helps lower that pressure because we're not making assumptions about how fast somebody else needs a response. So for example, you know, I, when we do our workshops with teams, we ask, you know, how fast do you expect a response in Microsoft Teams or Slack? And you see this like wide range from 30 minutes to one hour to 24 hours to two dates is such a wide range. So if you just get those kind of uh, um, assumptions off the table and actually create some norms, then okay. it helps everybody. Um, and then in terms of that proactive permission, as a manager especially, 
getting to know your people, getting to understand what are the things that they're juggling within their work life, within their personal life, what's important to them, and providing that proactive permission to turn off and actually uh, do those other things that they are passionate about and, and fill their cup. So for example, because of the time zone between uh, Oakland, California, where my teams for Clorox were located and, and Philadelphia, I'm three, it was always three hours ahead. And one of our leadership team meetings was actually scheduled on Halloween evening. Oh and, gosh. you know, I'm the only one who's calling in from the East Coast. And I was not sure, you know, how to speak up about, you know, about about the fact that this was overlapping with my Halloween trick-or-treating time with my young children. And yeah. one of the things I ended up doing was uh, when we got on the call, I was in like full costume. <laughs> And my daughter was by, I was Maleficent and my daughter was also in costume and she came onto the screen and I was explaining, you know, I, I'm going to be here for 30 minutes, but then I have to, I have to leave and we're going to go trick or treating. And I think that the lesson there is to kind of think ahead about your team and think about where you can provide some proactive permission so they don't have to sit there and start thinking about, well, how am I going to speak up for this need that I have that I, I don't want you to think that I'm not committed to the team or the work, but I do yeah. have this other commitment that's really important to me. Yeah. I think as a, a pioneer of remote work, you kind of set the tone, honestly, for this these kinds of interactions. Um, but I'm sure that was hard <laughs> to not have like a playbook. It's nice that you now are, have created the playbook, which is really um, uh, impressive. Uh, but um, I, I'm betting like showing up to that meeting in your costume must have been like, hello, people. <laughs> I'm here. Yeah, I have this just huge amount of empathy when I work with teams because I've been there. I've seen it. You know, and that's part of the approach that we take with the teams that we work with is having that empathy and then providing them with really tactical tools and techniques to enable them to come up that learning curve a lot faster than having to go through all of the successes and screw ups that I, I had yeah. to go through over those eight years of leading those hybrid and remote teams. It's so awesome. Really, it is. Um, we're coming up against time, but something I really want to ask you is, you know, what did you want to say on this podcast that maybe I didn't ask the right question to get it out of you. <laughs> is there something that you want to leave this audience with that, that you really think is important for them to know? I think we can just build on what we were talking about around the distance bias and the recency bias, especially in these hybrid work situations. So hybrid is much harder than fully remote because we do have these groups that come together that might be in the location majority working with other people in the location minority. And so you need to think about how to have a location inclusive culture. So a culture where everyone feels valued regardless of where they live or work. It means, you know, everyone in your organization feels like they belong and they're included regardless of their time zone or their location. And it even means creating equal access to information, to people, uh, equal access to development and career growth opportunities across locations. So Sasha, how can people find you? So the best way to find me is actually through my LinkedIn profile. So Sasha, S-A-C-H-A, Connor, C-O-N-N-O-R. And we put out you know, weekly tips on leading in distributed and hybrid and remote environments. And so you can even DM me through that if you're interested in learning more about our programming. 
And we've also created a, a special download for the listeners for this session. If you go to virtualworkinsider.com forward slash SCEDDA, S-K-E-D-D-A, then you can download our Creating a Location-Inclusive Culture Guide. That's incredible. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I'm sure that um, many people will be interested in, in seeing that. Um, well, thank you so much, Sasha, for joining us today. It was a huge pleasure meeting you and learning more from you. I think you had a lot to offer our audience. So thank you so much. 